0: Good morning. (laughs) Our scripture this morning comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. but only faith working through love. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. So again, I did not introduce myself before. Let me do that. Uh, my, my name is Drew and I'm a pastor here at Redeemer and it's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us here this morning and those of you who are at home as well. We are in a series on crucial habits, spiritual disciplines. Now we're calling them, as you see on the graphic behind me, Habits of Grace. Because it is so easy to become legalistic about Bible reading and prayer and these types of things. And so we want to put before us a constant reminder that you become a Christian by grace and not works. And if that's true, then you grow as a Christian by grace and not works as well. And so the spiritual disciplines are designed to allow grace to grow. Because that's what you need in your life. You need grace to grow in your life. Now, a synonym for grace is Freedom. And that's where this text in Galatians chapter 5 begins. So you see there in verse 1 where Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. And so we're to stand firm in that freedom and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But we, as we even read that verse, have to fight through some cultural conditioning to react rightly to that word freedom as it's given to us there. Because in our culture, any limit, any limit is seen as a restriction of personal freedom. Cultural doctrine dictates that you cannot be fully human without being free to choose as you desire in every moment about whatever it is that you're deciding about. Freedom is the absence of any external rule or reality other than my own personal desire and preference. But God says that freedom doesn't come from having the ability to choose whatever you want, but from having the ability to make the right choice, to choose what you've been made for. And so freedom at least according to the scriptures, isn't an absence of limits. It is a life that is lived within the right limits. Freedom is not about being able to do whatever I want to do. That's actually slavery. It's being free from the slavery of selfishness to live a life of love for God and others. But that goes against the natural inclination of our hearts, and so we need crucial habits. That's why we're taking the time to do this series, because we need... These crucial habits that keep our focus and energy directed toward God and others and away from ourselves. We need small patterns that are organized towards the big goal of life. And so spiritual habits, like the ones we're going to begin talking about in just a week or so, these spiritual habits are gears that direct life toward the purpose of love. So if you've designed your life, right, gear, like gears in a watch that keep things moving the way they're supposed to. If you've des- designed your life, have you designed a life of love? Do you practice love? Because love takes practice. That's the question that's before us this morning. Do you practice love? Now, as we come to this text in Galatians 5, we're going to see that there are two big truths. There are two really big truths that are, that are given to us here from Paul. And the first is that faith alone counts with God. This is verse 6. Faith alone counts with God, first big truth. Second big truth is that faith is never alone. So it's faith alone that counts, but that faith that counts is never alone. Those are the two big truths. And then we just want to ask the question, in light of that, how do you get more love for God and others? What does that have to do with the spiritual habits, those two big truths? That faith alone counts and faith is never alone. What does that have to do with the habits? Those are going to be uh, the three points of the outline that I've given you this morning. We're going to just walk through the text along those three headings. But before you do, uh, would you just pray with me very quickly when we say, Heavenly Father, we are not here because we are good, but because we are yours. So may your spirit come now and make these dry bones live. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. But we would see Jesus in him only. And in his name we pray. Amen. And so, let's start with the first big truth. And the first big truth that Paul gives to us here is that faith alone counts with God. Look at verse 6 again. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That word counts there, describes something that has strength, potency. I like that word best. That might be the best word, something that's potent. In other words, you can only get somewhere spiritually through faith. Faith and faith alone. That's all that's the only thing that counts with God. Faith is the only thing that can affect your standing with God because faith puts you in Christ, and that's what matters. That's really what counts. Not circumcision. Look there. Not circumcision. And circumcision, as Paul uses it here, refers to the typical religious person who, whether consciously or unconsciously, believes that their moral record is what really matters, that what really counts is whether they've been good and not bad. This is moralism. And moralism says God loves you because you love him first. God loves you if you obey him and love him first. It adds ifs and buts to God's love. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape letters called it Christianity and. If you've read if you read that book, the high-ranking demon Screwtape strategized with his understudy Wormwood how to keep humans in the state of mind I call Christianity and. He said, the thing we can't allow to happen, he said, we can't let them be merely Christians. Christianity and. But here's the truth. Grace doesn't have shades. It's all or nothing. Moralism, like I'm trying to describe here, isn't bad Christianity. It's outside of Christianity. That's the problem. And that's the point Paul's making here. Look at these strong statements he makes. He tells these these Galatians who have, kind of fallen back into moralism. In verse four, he says, you're severed from Christ. Again, in verse four, you've fallen away from grace. Those are really, really strong statements, but because this is a really, really big problem. It's a really, really big error. Now, it's cliche to say, though you hear it all the time, something like, I hate religion, right? You hear it all the time. I hate religion, people say in our world. And so here's how I've started responding when people say, you know, I hate religion. I, I say, I hate religion too. That's why I'm a Christian, Because Christianity's not moralism. It's not religion. It's gospel. It's something different. But there's a danger inside of Christianity, like inside of being a person who comes to church and is doing all the Christian things that you do to revert back to moralism. And that's what the Galatians were doing. They were doing it intentionally with eyes wide open. These were Gentile Christians who received Paul's gospel of grace as he came and preached to them, and they founded this church, but then another faction came in as Paul moved on somewhere else, and they began to teach that faith wasn't enough, that they also had to submit to religious institutions, to religious ceremony. In this case, they had to, they had to be circumcised in order to be right with God. It wasn't enough just to believe. They had to add something to that. They had to get religion They had to believe and be good, and then they would be saved if they could follow the rules that needed to be followed. And so a number of these Gentile believers submitted themselves to circumcision because they came to believe, verse 2, that it gave them a spiritual advantage. Do you see that word? In other words, they they believed that it was a necessary condition for them to be right with God, that somehow the addition of circumcision to faith gave them some standing with God. But that is salvation by works, and it creeps into Christianity all the time. So we have to constantly be on guard against it, which is what this letter is about. Moralism, what it does is it, pet, it picks some pet rule or identity marker. So here it's circumcision, but it can be anything. And, and the funny thing is, is it's usually something that is obeyable on its own. It's usually a rule that's achievable by itself so that you can do it, right, and feel, and, and feel good about having done it and then feel really great about all the people who haven't done it. This is the way this works. You can even do it with theology. John Newton said self-righteousness can feed upon doctrines as well as works. You can turn theology, good theology, into a work and feel good about yourself because you have good theology and then feel really good about yourself because of everybody else's bad theology. Moralism creeps in. But here's the problem. As soon as you add a rule or a regulation onto faith... You're not just obligating yourself and others to that one thing. When you induce one rule, you obligate yourself to keep all the rest. That's verse 3. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, the problem, listen, I tell you, those who, those who accept circumcision, now you're obligated to keep the whole law. And when you do, you fall back from grace back into law keeping. So there are two options. There are two options. You can look to Jesus and rely upon him and trust him and believe in him, or you can try to advantage yourself through your own moral effort. But in that case, Paul very clear, clearly says, if you start to rely upon your own doing, upon your own law-keeping, upon your own obeying of the rules, then Christ is no longer any advantage to you. If you look to the law for your advantage and not Jesus, then Jesus is no longer an advantage. So, so the formula goes like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen. You with me? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I said the Galatians were doing this intentionally, but it can happen unconsciously as well. You can be committed doctrinally to salvation by faith, Alone, but still function like a moralist. Richard Lovelace talked about this, and he said that the most Christians, so most of us in this room, if we could really peel back the layers and really get underneath how we're, how, what we say we believe to how we're living our lives, he said most of us have a theoretical commitment to the gospel, but are in our day-to-day experience, he used these theological words, he said most people rely on their sanctification for justification. Now Christianity says justification comes first. God loves us and accepts us for Jesus' sake, not on the basis of our moral record. Isn't that great news? He declares us not guilty. He, he forgives us. We are, we are made righteous in Jesus Christ and him alone. And then, justification, then he sets out to make us more and more like Jesus all throughout the rest of our lives. But emotionally, we can reverse the order and slip into performanceism. And that is when you lose your spiritual potency. Because it saps your strength to be constantly on the roller coaster of good day, bad day. Oh, I had a good day, God must love me. Oh, I have a bad day, God must hate me. And you go through this whole process of living your life this way and it just destroys your spiritual potency. It saps your strength. Now, what we learn is that faith alone counts with God. Not circumcision. But notice there, verse 6, not uncircumcision either. And uncircumcision here refers to a typical secular materialist. To relativism. Not moralism, relativism. Moralism says God loves you if or because you love him first. Moralism, relativism says God loves you just because. It doesn't matter what you do. There's no objective moral standard. If there is a God, and there probably isn't, but if there is, she would want you to be true to yourself. Find your truth. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever works for you. Sin is a social construct Developed by those in power to keep power. These are the things you hear. But Paul says, no, there's no spiritual power in that way of thinking either. It doesn't count. Because it fails to tackle reality. And So Christianity isn't moralism, and it isn't relativism. I mean, religious moralism and secular relativism are similar. That's the interesting thing. Religious moralism, okay, religion... And secular relativism, religion and, you know, whatever you want to call it, secularism, atheism, those two things are closer to one another than they are to Christianity. Because moralism says, moralism says, God God will love you if you love him first. Relativism says, well, God loves you no matter what. It doesn't matter. But Christianity says, no, no, God's love comes first. We love because he first loved us. What matters is whether you're, not whether you're good or bad, but whether you're in Christ. And the Christian position is found really in, in verse five, where Paul says this, he says, for through the spirit, by faith, we wait, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And so what faith does, faith is different. Faith On the one hand, acknowledges, unlike relativism, that there is a God who made us, and in our rebellion against his authority, we have become alienated from him, and there is no happiness in life without him. We will never feel at home in this world or with ourselves until we are right with him. But also, faith acknowledges that the way to be right with him is not through my own rightness. We are righteous through hope, verse 5, which doesn't mean that it's uncertain. It just means that it doesn't come from you and me. It's a gift. Righteousness is something that has to be given to us. And so we come to the gospel, and in the gospel we learn that Jesus' righteous life as your champion, his sacrificial death as your sacrifice, his powerful resurrection as your king, all that he was and is and all that he did and still does, that's what counts. And faith makes all of what he has done, all of who he is, faith makes that potent for you and then in you. And so only faith counts. But the second big truth, not only does faith, faith is the only thing that counts, but we also learn that faith is never alone. Now, I'm just channeling Martin Luther here he's attributed with saying this, that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's a pretty famous saying. And I'm thinking of the the phrase in the text, verse 6, that faith works through love. You might have a different translation. Faith expresses itself through love. Faith will always result in love. And so conversely, if there is no love, then there is no faith. That's what 1 John's about. So Jesus said there are two great commands. We read this. In our reading of the law this morning, he summed up the law. He said, there are two great commands, not just one. They came and said, what's the one command? And he said, well, there isn't just one, there's two. First, love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. But then the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to make a couple points here as well. And the first point that I want to make under this heading is that basically, it's basically what I've already said, that love is the residue of faith. Now, it is strange that Christians in the world today are not known for their love. It's not entirely fair, but it is a sign that something is significantly out of line in the way our faith is making itself known in our lives. Because faith and faith's potency... Is measured in love. Faith results in supernatural spiritual energy in a person that comes out of them in the form of love. That's what we're taught here: love for God, love for others. Elsewhere, Paul says this one of my favorite verses uh, in the scriptures, where where he says the love of Christ compels us; it controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, and he died for all. Listen, so that those who for whom he died may no longer live for themselves but for him. Now, that's true freedom. If you want a definition of freedom, that's true freedom, to have the power to not be enslaved to your own selfish desires but to be compelled in your whole life toward love for God and for others. You know, everybody, everybody's talking about what's happening in the labor market, in the world right now all this you know you you go just about anywhere these days and they can't serve you or they can't do something because they can't get enough employees to actually you know be able to be able to provide whatever service they're doing and everybody's talking about this this past week particularly it seemed there was a wall street journal article this week david brooks wrote about it uh this past week but um reese cliffs in lakeland even made the ledger if you saw that Uh, and uh and in most circles People are using it to score political points, and I want to offer a different hypothesis. I want to take us away from politics for a minute and talk more about kind of the philosophical underpinnings of this, because I read an article from the LA Times. You you say, what in the world are you doing reading the LA Times? It was in my Apple News Feed. It intrigued me. The title of the article was, Welcome to the Summer of Quitting, and they got me, And and I started to read it, and it was just fascinating, because... As I read, I just became more and more convinced that what we're seeing in the labor market is just another outworking of the dominant worldview in our culture that is also responsible for all the other things that are happening for all the identity politics and all of the political polarization and so forth. And there were these 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 things you need to you need to be invested in in understanding what I mean when I use words like existentialism and expressive individualism. Because these philosophical underpinnings of society are just making themselves known everywhere. They create a people who approach life from a hyper-individualistic, purely psychologized, radically selfish point of view. We don't know how to love. We are lo- I mean, we already have a whole lot against us because we're sinful people, but now the culture's adding on to that, and the result is that we are, we are quickly losing our ability to just be civil, and to love one another. And so this article in the LA Times, I just read it. I, it's there as a resource. You can look it up. It's, it's fascinating. But there are a number of different things in the article. Uh, one is Anthony Klotz, who's a professor at Texas A&M. He studies, get this, the psychology of quitting. <laughs> just think about that. You study the psychology of quitting? Okay. Interesting. Here's what he said. He said this. People have had epiphanies over the past year. We all want to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and many of us have realized that our job isn't the best way to get there. <laughs> it's not funny. We shouldn't laugh. Because <laughs> it's really not funny. It's, it's tragic. From a research standpoint, he goes on, one of our fundamental needs as human beings is the need for autonomy. And employers demanding a return to in-person work are asking, up to, asking us to give up this fundamental need we've had satisfied during the pandemic. Listen to the way, listen to that. And so then one 28-year-old woman who was interviewed in the course of the article, she said, life shouldn't be so stressful all the time. Capitalism has just gotten more and more detrimental to people's health. Now, you might, you might scoff, you might laugh, but I find this fascinating because never before have people thought and talked about work that way. It's so purely psychologized and selfish, but that is what the culture is doing to us. And it's why we need Christianity. It's why you need Christianity, if you're here and you're not a Christian. It's why, it's why our faith has so much to say to this cultural moment we're in because Christianity produces a different kind of people who are free to love and who are free to approach work as an act of love for God and love for others who don't just live for themselves and and look around and think, oh, I don't like this, so I'm not gonna do it or whatever it might be. But they look at all of life, even work as an opportunity to love. They have an inner motivational infrastructure that is unique and different from the rest of the world. And so if you're gonna be a Christian, then let's just put it out there up front: If you're gonna be a Christian, if you're gonna follow Jesus, you have to think differently. I mean, the value of work, for example, is not the psychological benefit it gives to you. You do it as an act of love because you do everything for love. Because God is love. God is overflowing with love and kindness and generosity. And we see this in the Lord Jesus himself. And so to know him is to become overflowing yourself. And so the gospel reverses the gravitational pull of the human heart from being curved in on itself to moving out in love faith energizes love for god and for others now the two go together and that's the other thing that i want to say about love you know the lawyer never asked jesus for one great command jesus said though there are two not one love god with everything with your whole heart and soul and mind that's number one. But then he said, love your neighbor. And he said, that's number two. And he said, number two is like number one. Do you see that there in the Matthew passage? The two is like number one. And that word, like, just means they're the same. Homoousas is what it is. It's, 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 like it's the word that the church settled on to describe the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the Trinity. He said, they are the same. They go together. You can't have one without the other. They're the same substance, the two of them. And this is challenging, too, because it forces us to keep things in balance that, again, the culture is really trying to, to polarize and, and put apart. So Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in our denomination in Nashville, he said it like this. The more biblically conservative our theology is, the more liberal we will be in how and who we love. He actually wrote a blog post in 2008. I didn't get this in, into your resources, I'm sorry, with a provocative title, Uh, and the title of the blog post was How Being Conservative Will Make You Liberal. (laughs) I read that too, because he got me with, again, he got me with the title. And he was reflecting on how genuine, true Christianity refuses to become the property of the political right or the political left. Because it's concerned about the issues that typically concern political conservatives. I mean, since the first century, Christians have been a sexual counterculture, committed to the sanctity of life, but it also encompasses the typical concerns of political progressives. We have always, always been famous for being multiracial and unified, for being a community of forgiveness and reconciliation, and for being hospitable to the poor and the suffering and doing all we can to work for justice in the world. And so Larry Hurtado, who is a Christian historian but not a Christian, he's written several books trying to chronicle how the early Christians had so much success. He's just surprised by it because he doesn't believe any of it, but his conclusion is basically this, the church... The church in the first century was something the world had never seen before. Because it had all of those priorities all at the same time. And they didn't know what to do with them. And they became a political, social counterforce in the world that changed the Roman Empire. Now in some ways, the political polarization that we're encountering in the world, in our culture, forces us to choose... And I, I've been I've been reflecting on how in many cases we're having to choose. It's forcing a choice between love for God and love for neighbor. I mean, so you go back and you think of all the things we've gone through over the last 18 months. Let's don't rehash them. We don't. This is a day of celebration, right? Not to go back into that stuff. But if you go back and you think about it, it really it really in some ways was a forced choice between love for God and love for neighbor. But Jesus said for people of faith, it's both and it's 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 both and not either or. And that means truly embracing a countercultural way of life. And it also means that we're going to be pressed into some very complex, ethical decision-making that requires a great deal of wisdom and creativity and grace. But love is our compass. But love for God and love for others, and never one without the other. And so two big truths. Faith alone counts with God, and faith that counts as never alone. So what does this have to do with crucial spiritual habits? Well, James James K. Smith, who I've talked a lot about, he's written a book called You Are What You Love. And his basic premise is that love is a habit. Love is a habit. Now listen to what he writes. I wish I could have gotten this in here for you as well, but I can send it to you later. He says, the human heart is like a compass, an erotic homing device that needs to be regularly calibrated and tuned to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. He says, it's crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. Because love is a habit. Our hearts are calibrated through imitation and immersion in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love then not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. You are what you love. Your love, your loves are being shaped by your habits. That's his point. And so there are sinful habits that are shaping us towards selfishness and so forth that have become automated through repetition in your life that you first have to become aware of and then substitute with new habits that begin to shape you differently. That's the whole premise of his book. So you need, you, need to, you need to unlearn these things that have become automated that are, that are moving you away from love towards God and other people and relearn new habits that are actually aiming your heart towards what the scripture says it should be aimed at and do those things until they become automated. That's the spiritual life. Doesn't that sound so unspiritual? You with me? But that's the way it works. You do things that are good for you not because you necessarily feel like doing them, But because in the doing of them, you will begin to feel like doing them. You do things that are good for you until you feel like doing them. The feelings come later. The habit comes first. And so learning to love God and learning to love others takes practice. Which is what we're going to be talking about. Faith energizes love. So how do you get more faith and thus more love? Well, the answer biblically is that faith is a grace. That it's God's working, you. you know, Ephesians 2, for by grace we're saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And so, faith, what you need, is something that God must give. You need more faith, but you can't make it happen. God has to work. That's the that's the predicament we're all in. We need faith, but faith doesn't come from us. And so we have to, we have to just reach out to the Lord and say, You know, we need you to do something in us. And that is where, that's where the habits come in, because what the habits do is. You know, you can't make this happen in your life, but you can get yourself to the place where God can make it happen. And once you get there, you say, God, please change me. Give me more faith for more love. That's the spiritual life. So this summer, we're going to talk about a number of different habits Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, fasting. I'm going to be absent for that week, but somebody else to talk to you about that one? Okay, as we talk about these things, keep this in mind. That they are ways, this is why we're doing this sermon this morning because as we begin to talk about these so that we'll keep in mind that they are ways of practicing love for God and for others for that is the great moral imperative of Christianity. But remember, remember what John says, we love because he first loved us. So the power to love comes from being loved. The crucial spiritual habits are also ways of practicing our belovedness in Jesus And so what Paul describes here being severed from Christ, falling away from grace, verse 4, that's flipping the breaker switch and cutting off all the power in your life. And it happens when you begin to trust in your own strength and goodness. When you do that, the power goes out. When you trust in your strength and goodness, the power goes out. And so the spiritual disciplines, these crucial habits that we're talking about, they are ways of keeping yourself in the love of God. They are habits of grace. As John Newton wrote in an old hymn, he said, Oh, for grace our hearts to soften. Teach us, Lord, at length to love. We, alas, forget too often what a friend we have above. Amen? Pray with me if you would. Scripture says, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And John addresses us as the beloved. And so, Father, as we consider these things, my heart breaks for the world that knows so little of this love. Some of us who grew up in families void of love, some here who have not yet believed and so have not yet had their hearts healed by love. So I pray first that you would make known to us in this moment the great love that you have for us in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But we confess like orphans. We continue to try to prove ourselves worthy of being loved. Even those of us who have long believed. And in doing so, we cut ourselves off from the transforming power of grace. So forgive us. And in this moment, give us grace to lay our deadly doing down. Thank you. Jesus, that in your life, death, and resurrection, you have broken the power of sin. now living in us, you can free us from the slavery of selfishness that we might busy ourselves in the work of love. And so, Holy Spirit, come and do just that. Fill us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you come. Pour out the love of the Father into our hearts until we overflow. Jesus, you you invite us to ask for the Spirit, and so we ask for him to come. In this quiet moment, we have to reflect here's what I would say to you. Do you need more faith? If so, Jesus said, ask. So ask. Take a minute and ask. There's some questions for you to consider in that insert. What's one love God habit, love for God habit that you might begin to work on this summer what comes to mind and would you begin to talk to the lord about that just to say oh father help me to help me to figure out a strategy to love you more and what's one love for neighbor habit that you might begin this summer as well talk to him about that too what do i need to do father to guide my heart better toward love for those that you've called me to So Father, thank you for this moment to be quiet before you. Remind us of the truth. That as we believe in Jesus, the Spirit comes and he breaks the chains of sin. He breaks the chains of selfishness in our life and he set us free. And because he set us free, we can contemplate these things with you and we can stand and we can sing together. And so we do that now as we close this service out as a response to all that you have done for us, all that we've heard this morning, and as a way of reminding ourselves of the truth that we indeed have been set free. May that make may that freedom make itself known in our lives, in our love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here's the great news. Receive these words of benediction as a reminder that this week will not be decided by whether or not you can continue to sing the song you just sang about your love for God, but this week will be decided by his unfailing love for you. That's what these words mean. And so as he sends us now, he sends us with this promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.